Good morning. I'm putting the wrong thing down there. The Bible does not go down there. It goes up here. So does my sermon. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you this morning and have have this opportunity to open up God's Word with you. I want to ask you to join me again in a brief word of prayer, and then we will begin. Let's pray. Father, you promised in your Word that your Word will not return void, but it will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. We entrust ourselves to you today. And we pray that your word would powerfully accomplish whatever purposes you have in mind. We humbly ask that those purposes would be the salvation of those who do not believe and the sanctification of those who do believe and the glorification of Jesus Christ in our midst. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapters 40 and 41. If you're using the Bible that we provided You'll find the beginning of the passage on page 33, but I am just going to read chapter 41 today rather than both chapters because of how long it is. So you can turn to page 34 if you're using the Bible that we've provided. I want to encourage you to open to the passage so that you can follow along when I read it here in a few moments. And I also want to encourage you to keep your Bible open throughout our time because we're going to be looking back often at the passage together. Again, given that we're covering two chapters this morning, I won't read the whole passage. My plan instead is to summarize what happens in chapter 40, because I think it can be summarized pretty easily, and then read all of chapter 41, because this is one unit tied together by the interpretation of dreams, and we'll see that the main point, the main lesson of the passage really shines through in chapter 41. The last time we were in Genesis, we saw how God drew Joseph out of the pit, and then exalted him to a place of prominence in Potiphar's house before Joseph was falsely accused of a crime and ended up back in the pit, imprisoned in Egypt. But even though he had been thrown back into the pit, we see hints at the end of chapter 39 that God would exalt Joseph once more. So I want you to look with me at the end of chapter 39, verse 23. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So Joseph is in prison heading into chapter 40, but God is with him. And we're going to see that God is going to exalt Joseph once more. But how would he exalt him? And for what purpose would he exalt him? Well, that's what chapters 40 and 41 are all about. So summarizing chapter 40, if you're you're looking at it in your Bible, you can just kind of let your eyes fall over the chapter. I'm going to move pretty quickly through this. In chapter 40, we learn that two high-ranking officials have been put in prison by Pharaoh, the chief cupbearer, and the chief baker. These men were responsible for managing all of the ingredients and all of the people who put together Pharaoh's food and drink. They've committed some offense against Pharaoh. We doubt they they were part of a, a plot to poison him, because if they were, he would have put them to death, not put them in prison. But they've committed some offense against Pharaoh, and while in prison, they each have a troubling dream. They're troubled by those dreams, and Joseph notices that they're troubled, and he asks them what's happened. They tell Joseph about their dreams, and then he rightly interprets their dreams for them. 
He tells the cupbearer that his dream means he will be restored to his position as cupbearer and assume his role once again. And then he tells the baker the bad news that his dream means he's going to be hanged for his offenses. And three days after his interpretation of their dreams, his predictions come true. The cupbearer is restored to his position and the baker was hanged. But even though Joseph asked the cupbearer to remember him when he gets out of prison and help Joseph himself get out of prison, we see at the end of chapter 40, verse 23, look there with me. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. But we'll see here in chapter 41 that even though the cupbearer has forgotten Joseph, God hasn't forgotten him, and God will exalt him again for a glorious purpose. So I'm going to read chapter 41 for us now. I invite you to follow along as I do. This is God's word. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. He fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke. And behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows but when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, 
but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garnets of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus, he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath Paneah, and he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to, the end, to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. 
Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. The main point of Genesis 40 and 41 is to show that God sovereignly raises up a divinely inspired Savior to feed the world during a sovereignly appointed famine. God sovereignly raises up a divinely inspired Savior to feed the world during a sovereignly appointed famine. What we're going to do with the rest of our time is walk through chapter 41. We'll refer back to chapter 40 a couple times later in the sermon. I'm going to explain the text as we go. Then we're going to consider how this passage points forward to and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel. And then we're going to consider a few applications of how we should live in light of this passage. So let's go ahead and walk through chapter 41. As it opens, we learn that two years have passed since Joseph interpreted dreams for the cupbearer and baker. You wonder if when Joseph saw the cupbaker leave the prison, if he thought, man, it's going to happen soon. He's going to tell Pharaoh, and maybe I'm going to get out of here. Two whole years have passed. Surely he's gone through disappointment and just gotten to the point where he doesn't even think he's going to be remembered anymore. Two years have passed since he interpreted dreams for the cupbearer and baker, and we see that Pharaoh now has dreams. Two dreams, in fact. In the first dream, he's standing by the Nile River, and he sees seven plump and healthy cows come out of the river where they feed on the grass. But then those cows are followed by seven ugly and thin cows. The Hebrew word translated ugly there is evil. These were evil-looking, ugly, and gaunt cows that were surprisingly cannibalistic. Rather than eating the grass, they ate the seven healthy cows. Pharaoh's understandably startled, wakes up, probably with a bit of a cold sweat, but then he falls asleep again and has a second dream. This time he sees seven healthy ears of grain growing on one stalk, followed by seven ears that are thin and blighted by the east wind. The presence of the east wind there I don't think is by chance. Throughout Genesis so far, the east has symbolized Uh, separation from God and judgment. It's as though separation from God and, and judgment is coming upon the land of Egypt through these dreams. And the unhealthy ears, just like the unhealthy cows, swallow up the healthy ears. In the morning, he's troubled. And I think he's troubled because he understands that the dreams indicate that something ominous is going to happen to Egypt as a whole, the nation that he rules over. Because the Nile... Cows and grain were all symbols of Egypt as a nation and its power. The Nile obviously symbolized the lushness and fertility of the land of Egypt. Cows symbolized Isis, one of the gods of Egypt, and grain was one of its most prominent exports. It was a breadbasket for the world, you might say. Pharaoh obviously wants to know what these dreams mean. And so he summons the people that you would have asked in his day. He summons the magicians and wise men of Egypt to interpret his dreams for him, right? These were the people in Pharaoh's day who had unique and special insight into the mysteries of the world and to things like dreams and what they meant. But none of them can explain the dreams to Pharaoh. 
Now look at verse nine. The cupbearer remembers Joseph. Ah! Can you imagine being there in that moment? Have you ever had one of those moments where panic strikes you? Because you remember that you had something important to do or somewhere important to be. Maybe you're laying in bed and you're just like, ah, I've missed the test. I've got an appointment. I'm supposed to be in an interview. I got to be there, right? You've completely forgotten something important that happens. Last week, I cleaned the filter uh, on our oven fan. You know, the one that gathers all of the, the grease and nastiness that your oven puts up into the fan, gets caked by uh, grease from years of cooking. Well, ours is large and it doesn't fit in the kitchen sink. But it does fit in the utility sink in our basement. So I went down to the utility sink, plugged it up, turned on the hot water, and poured in some dish soap. And I decided to stand there and watch, because after 43 years of life, I know that if I walk away from the sink, I will forget that the water is running. So I stood there, and I watched it run. Finally, it finished, and I put the filter in, and let it soak. Then I decided I'll just go ahead and start a load of laundry because our washer and dryer is right there and I'm a responsible helper. So I load the laundry into the washer, I fire it up, and I went back to my office and kept working because the filter is soaking in the utility tub where it should be and the water's no longer running. Then about 30 minutes later, I heard that familiar sound of the washing machine going into its spin cycle. And as soon as I heard that noise, I was struck with panic. No, because our spin cycle comes after the washing machine unloads all of the water into it. And where does our washing machine unload water? Into the utility sink, the sink that is plugged up and full. I was struck with panic, ran downstairs. What did I find? Tons of water filling up our basement. I quickly cleaned it up, put fans down because I didn't want Leah to know like I'd made another mistake, but then I told her, you won't believe what I've done again, right? I think that sense of panic that I was struck with, like, ah, no, the water's on the floor, I know it, is the same type of panic that the cupbearer probably felt. I was supposed to tell you about this man two years ago. I told him I would remember, and I forgot. He can interpret your dreams. So Pharaoh summons Joseph, tells Joseph about his two dreams, and that none of his wise men can interpret them. And then Joseph clearly explains the meaning of the dreams. Look at verse 25 and following. According to Joseph, the dreams have one meaning. God is showing Pharaoh what he's about to do. There's gonna be seven years of abundance of food growing from the ground, followed by seven years of famine. According to Joseph, the reason there were two dreams is to show God is going to do it. The thing has been fixed by God, and he's going to do it soon. But then interestingly, Joseph goes above and beyond, right? He was just asked to interpret dreams. He now displays his divinely given wisdom not only by interpreting dreams, but by his wise counsel. He counsels Pharaoh on what he should do to prepare for the famine. And Pharaoh recognizes his wisdom. Look at verse 38. He exclaims, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? None of the wise men and magicians can do what this man does. And so Pharaoh exalts Joseph. He exalts Joseph to the place of being second in command in Egypt. He gives Joseph his signet ring, adorns him in robes and gold jewelry, 
places him in his second chariot. And wherever Joseph went, people shouted, bow the knee. Everyone in Egypt bowed before Joseph. God sovereignly raised up Joseph, a divinely inspired man. But why? Why did God sovereignly raise Joseph from the pit and exalt him to Pharaoh's right hand? He sovereignly raised up Joseph to be a divinely inspired savior who feeds the world during a sovereignly appointed famine. That's what we see in the rest of chapter 41. Joseph gets married. He has two children. He spends time going throughout the land, overseeing the storing up of grain in preparation for the coming famine. Now, I want you to look with me at verse 53 of chapter 41. The seven years of abundance end, and then comes the famine. There was famine in all lands outside of Egypt. But in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. When bread ran out and people needed more, look at the end of verse 55. Pharaoh didn't say, come to me. He said, go to Joseph. He can help you. He can feed you. Now look at verse 56. When the famine had spread, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. Now verse 57. Moreover, all the earth came to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. In Joseph, God sovereignly raised up a divinely inspired savior to feed the world during a sovereignly appointed famine. We can't miss how God has sovereignly raised Joseph up. Right throughout all of his trials, God has been with Joseph, sovereignly ordering the circumstances and events of his life to bring him to this point. That's why it's so important throughout the Joseph story, you see at every point, whether he's in the pit or he's been exalted, the Lord was with him and caused him to succeed. God is sovereignly ordering the circumstances and events of his life to lead him to this very point. And God gave him divine wisdom. He is divinely inspired. Look back to chapter 40, verse 8. When the cupbearer and baker tell him they've had dreams, but nobody can interpret them, look at what Joseph says. Do not interpretations belong to the Lord? And then he goes on to interpret their dreams. God gave him the wisdom to interpret their dreams correctly. And not just their dreams, but Pharaoh's. Look at chapter 41, verse 16. After Pharaoh asked Joseph to interpret his dreams, Joseph says, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. God will interpret your dreams. Now look at chapter 41, verse 25. You see the same thing. The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. After which Pharaoh acknowledges Joseph's divinely inspired wisdom. Can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? You clearly have wisdom that comes from God. God sovereignly raised up a divinely inspired savior. And Moses wants us to see him as a savior. It's 
Joseph's plans that succeed. Look at verse 49. He stores up grain like the sand of the sea, so much grain that it couldn't be measured or counted. Can any of the teens or kids here today tell me where in Genesis we've seen promises of things numbering more than the sand of the sea? Exactly right. God promises to Abraham. Moses wants us to see how Joseph is the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. God promised Abraham descendants that are more than the sand of the sea, more than can be counted. Not only that, God promised Abraham that from him would come kings and that through his offspring, all the nations would be blessed And Moses wants us to see how Joseph is the fulfillment of those promises. He is a royal ruler, Pharaoh's second in command over the most powerful nation on earth. He stores up grain like the sand of the sea, and through him, all of the nations are blessed as he provides them with bread during the midst of a famine. He saves them from the famine. But we also have to notice that Joseph isn't the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. Because he isn't the last king that would come from Abraham, many more would come after him. And while he was able to bless the nations by by providing bread for a time, the bread that he provided wouldn't last forever. It would either be eaten up or rot and have to be thrown out, right? Not only that, Joseph clearly didn't have the power to overturn the curse of sin, of which famines are a result. He couldn't stop the famine from coming. He could only help people navigate in the midst of it. But in, the pa- in this passage, we see how Joseph clearly foreshadows the true divinely inspired Savior who God sovereignly raised up to save us not from famine but from God's sovereignly appointed judgment. The true royal ruler who brings blessing to the whole world. Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true divinely inspired savior. We remember from our sermons in Luke during Christmas how Jesus was sovereignly conceived by the Holy Spirit. Later at his baptism, how the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove. And while Joseph's wisdom was impressive, Jesus' wisdom was unmatched. Joseph was a prototype of the wise kings that would follow him, kings like Solomon, who would come later. But what did Jesus say about himself in the Gospels? The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment and condemn this generation, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, someone greater than Solomon, someone greater than Joseph is here. And who's he talking about? Himself. He is the true divinely inspired king. Jesus was not simply divinely inspired. He was divinity embodied. He was the incarnate God, God in the flesh. And in Jesus, we see the pattern of Joseph's life 
ultimately fulfilled. He was truly cast into the pit. You notice on multiple occasions in chapter 40 and chapter 41, Joseph refers not to being imprisoned, but to being in the pit and drawn out of the pit, which throughout scripture comes to symbolize and stand for death and being pulled out of the pit of death, right? Jesus was truly cast into the pit, not in prison, but buried in a tomb after being murdered on the cross by his own people. But just as God was with Joseph in the pit and exalted him to Pharaoh's right hand, after which everyone in Egypt bowed before him, so God was with Jesus in the pit and exalted him to the right hand of the majesty on high. And what does Paul say after God exalted Jesus? God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As much as people went before Joseph in the land of Egypt and said, bow the knee, so messengers will go out before the Lord Jesus Christ and tell all the earth, bow the knee. The King of kings has come. And just as God sovereignly exalted Joseph as a Savior by providing bread during the famine, So God exalted Jesus and made him savior of the world by providing bread from heaven. The people who ate Joseph's bread, right, they would hunger again. But the people who ate Jesus' bread and who eat Jesus' bread will never hunger. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger hunger. The the hunger Jesus refers to and the bread that he provides aren't physical. He's speaking metaphorically here. The hunger we all have for meaning, for purpose, for hope, for joy, for security, for safety, for salvation. The presence of that hunger in our souls is a symptom of a deeper problem. It's a symptom of our separation from God. That's a result of our sins against him. When Adam and Eve rejected God, sin came into the world, as did death and things like famines, disease, sorrow, sadness, wars, violence, depression, disaster, and all that follows. Adam and Eve chose to live in a state of spiritual famine rather than feasting with God at the table he provided. And we've all made the same decision by our sins against God. We're spiritually starving because of our sins, and just as God sent Joseph to warn Pharaoh about the coming famine, so God sent Jesus to warn us about the coming judgment for our sins. All who have sinned against God are condemned before God and destined for judgment. But to all who recognize they're spiritually starving, all who recognize They've chosen to live in a state of spiritual famine rather than with God. Jesus offers himself as the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Jesus offers himself as bread for your soul. He offers himself as the thing without which your soul cannot survive. He feeds us spiritually by bearing the punishment for our sins. 
by giving us his righteousness, by removing our condemnation, by giving us peace with God, by rescuing us from the coming judgment, and by giving us the certain hope of eternal life. To my friends here who maybe don't follow Jesus, I wonder if you've ever noticed a spiritual rumbling in your spiritual belly. I wonder if you've ever noticed that your soul is hungry and that it can't and won't be satisfied by anything this world has to offer. Think about things like money and wealth, power, sex, self-expression, freedom from authority, being your authentic self, you doing you, wellness, finding your own path, living for yourself. While those things promise abundance now, they are ultimately empty and will leave your soul malnourished. You see, you see this even in the passage, right? We have to realize that the Bible is both deeply rooted in historical events These things really happened. There was a Pharaoh who had dreams who called a man named Joseph who came to him and interpreted the dreams. And some of the things that happened in Scripture, especially early in Scripture, and some of the events that happened in Scripture take on symbolic meaning that we're meant to learn from. The Nile, for instance, symbolized security and abundance. Cows symbolized the gods of the Egyptians, and grain symbolized their sustenance. All of the things that Egyptians would have trusted in because they brought abundance for a time. But what do we learn from the dreams? Those things that come out of the lush and fertile Nile that seem to produce abundance for a time, they are all ultimately eaten up. They do not eternally satisfy. They will eventually perish They were consumed in a famine that God sovereignly ordained. In the same way, friends, modern Americans, we have our Niles. We have our cows. We have our grains. Those things that seem to give us an abundant life now. But just like happened here, those things that seem to produce an abundant life now will be consumed by the coming judgment. Money won't save you. Self-expression won't save you. Freedom from authority won't save you. All of those things are like the the plump and healthy cows that came out of the river that seem to be abundant for a time, but they will all ultimately be consumed in the judgment. All of those things will be consumed and there will be nowhere to turn. This is why when you turn to the book of Revelation at the end of Scripture, you see that Egypt, the nation as a whole, symbolically stands for all the people in the world who have trusted in the abundance of this world to save them, but who ultimately fall in the judgment. Turn to Jesus. He is the bread of life. He alone can satisfy your hunger. He alone can save you and bring you to God. He alone can cure your spiritual famine. Only he can give you the abundance that you are seeking. And I want to press this point home for the teens here. I talk about this a lot with you all, so this isn't going to be new for you. You've heard it before. I'm just bringing it up again because the Bible is bringing it up again and because of how often the Bible brings it up. Don't put your hope in the abundance that the world offers. Don't look for ultimate joy in the shiny 
things of life. Don't look for your identity and your accomplishments or your skills or anything that you might be good at. Praise God for those skills. Use them for God's glory, but look to God and God alone. Those things may bring abundance and joy and satisfaction for a time. They won't ultimately satisfy your hunger. When you move on from here, from CBC, if you move out of the area, you're going to be confronted with more and more voices who claim to know what you should believe about ultimate reality and how you should live your life in light of it. I want to direct your attention uh, in light of that to Genesis chapter 41, verse 8. I want you to look there again with me, especially for the teens. Thinking about those voices you're going to hear in the world who tell you about ultimate reality and how you should live. Chapter 41, verse 8. Pharaoh woke from his dream and called the magicians and wise men, but there was none who could interpret them for Pharaoh. Unless those voices that you hear in life are telling you what to believe, uh, excuse me, unless the people who are telling you what to believe about ultimate realities and how to live in light of them are pointing to scripture, respectfully, they don't know what they're talking about. They're no different than these magicians and wise men. They won't be able to tell you the truth about God or about eternal life. If you move on from CBC someday, do what Pharaoh did and entrust yourself to someone with godly wisdom. A godly pastor, a a church that preaches the Bible, or godly friends who will walk alongside of you. But these are lessons not just for the teens, these are lessons for all of us, right? What voices dominate your podcast feeds? What YouTube channels are you subscribed to? What authors do you read or listen to, and how are their opinions on ultimate realities shaping your life and how you live? Don't get me wrong, lots of people in the world have lots of valuable expertise on lots of different subjects, but when it comes to ultimate realities, God, sin, salvation, everlasting life, are the voices that you're listening to like the wise men and magicians, or are they like Joseph? I want you to also think about your life. How are those things that promise abundance and satisfaction but can't ultimately deliver, how are those things finding a home in your heart? Are they? I think part of, the, part of the journey towards the everlasting city where we are finally satisfied in Christ as Christians is we know these things can't provide the abundance that we're looking for, but we have to constantly disentangle our hearts from them, right? How are those things possibly finding a home in your heart? In, inevitably, we're in a constant war against the flesh and trusting in the world. But friends, let's be freshly warned by the evil and gaunt cows and the dead ears of grain. Those things that promise abundance, they are perishing. But there are other lessons that we should learn from this passage as well. Joseph is a positive example for us in many ways. Even the Apostle Paul says, the things that happened in the Old Testament, they happened as examples for us, as lessons for us. I want you to first notice his humility. He a prisoner is brought before Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt. At the time, the most powerful nation on earth, making Pharaoh the most powerful man on earth. And Pharaoh says, I've heard that you have the skills to interpret dreams. I, I've, heard that you're, I've heard of your talent, your gifts, and of your ability to interpret dreams. Now look at Joseph's response in chapter 41, verse 16. It is not in me. <laughs> right, like... He says that to the most powerful man on earth. It is not in me. 
No, actually I can't. But God can. It's not me who interprets the dreams. It's God who, God who does. Let's put this in, in, in our day. Think about the United States. Right? Let's call it the most powerful nation on earth. Making the president the most powerful man on earth. Let's say our president calls you, you individually, to the Oval Office. You enter the Oval Office and you see his desk is surrounded by all of his powerful assistants, his chief of staff, his executive cabinet, all of the most important, powerful people in the world today in the United States. They're all watching. The president calls you in to commend you on the excellence of your work and to invite him, invite you to give him personal counsel to, uh, to help him think about how to protect the nation from an oncoming disaster. And the first words he says to you in front of this large an impressive assembly of powerful people is, I hear you are outstanding at your work. What are the first words that come out of your mouth? I bet they're not what Joseph says, right? I bet you say something like, well, thank you, Mr. President. Yes, Mr. President, I have studied long and hard to establish myself, right? Your, your first words are almost certainly not, no, I'm actually not good at it, but God is, right? But his humility is exemplary. His, his wisdom shines through brightest in his recognition that his wisdom isn't his own. It's God's. Let that be a lesson to us. Not that you need to think less of yourself and go around acting like you're not actually good at things that you might be good at. That's not humility. Instead, embrace whatever gifts God has given you and unashamedly give God the glory for them. Praise God for the gifts that he's given. It's, it's God who's enabled me to do this. And tell people that. You, you, you might think about pointing to God and his glory in that way. And that's, that, that leads us to the second lesson I think we should learn from Joseph is in how boldly, unashamedly, and straightforwardly in a kind way, he talks about the Lord to people who don't know the Lord. When the cupbearer and baker who would have believed in Egyptian gods, plural, tell him about their dream. Joseph straightforwardly says, oh, the interpretation of dreams comes from the Lord. Later, he tells Pharaoh, who definitely worshiped Egyptian gods, it's God, the Lord, Yahweh, who interprets dreams, not your gods. But he doesn't say that. He just, it's God who interprets dreams. It's God who's sending the famine. It's God who will shortly bring it about. He isn't beating people over the head with his faith but neither is he shying away from what he believes and knows to be true about the world and about the future of Egypt. What a great example he is for how we should be in conversations with our neighbors and coworkers. Talking like we're Christians because we're Christians. Right, a pastor friend of mine recently shared about how he noticed that the way he would talk would change depending on the group of friends he was around. If he was around his non-Christian friends in the baseball league that he's a part of coaching, he would talk about the things that they talked about. But when he was around Christians or other pastors, he would talk about things the way Christians normally do. And he realized that he wasn't being himself. And he was missing possible opportunities to talk about the Lord around his non-Christian friends. I remember doing the same thing when I was in the Coast Guard before I went into ministry and worked with people who didn't follow Jesus. I still have to fight that temptation today when I'm with family and friends who don't follow Jesus. One part of you doesn't want to bring up Jesus or God or the Lord because you don't want them to feel awkward. 
But another part of you doesn't want to bring up Jesus, God, or the Lord because you don't want to feel awkward and you don't want this conversation to get really real, really weird really quickly. But I wonder how many evangelistic opportunities we may be missing out on by not seasoning all of our speech with our faith in Christ. Let me me be clear. I'm not saying you need to go share the gospel in every conversation. Not what I'm saying. I'm talking about not avoiding mentioning the Lord when you otherwise would in the company that you might be a part of in this church. I'm talking about doing and saying the things Christians do and say on a regular basis. Being a witness to people over a long period of time so that when God brings a personal famine into their life, they turn to you for help and you point them to the place where they can find eternal heavenly bread. I can't, I can't think of a better example of this than what Dan Orlovsky did this past week. Orlovsky is an NFL commentator and a strong Christian. He's regularly on all of the popular sports channels and shows talking about the NFL. And last week at the Buffalo Bills game, many of you probably have heard, one of the players went into cardiac arrest. It was terrible, terrible to watch. And many people were shook up about it. Orlovsky ends up on NFL Live, one of the biggest NFL shows on ESPN, one of the most secular stations on TV today. And as they're talking about the situation, talking about how thoughts and prayers are with DeMar Hamlin, Orlovsky basically says, I'm not sending prayers to DeMar Hamlin. I'm going to pray right now on live TV. I believe in the power of prayer, so I'm praying right now. And he leads the panel in prayer to God Almighty. On NFL Live, on ESPN, you bet that wasn't in their schedule. They weren't expecting that in their programming. A headline from a news outlet in Australia said, live TV moment stuns America. Here's the thing. It shouldn't. It shouldn't stun America that Christians do what Christians do, which is pray to God for help when they need it. He's just doing and saying what Christians do and say. And what a witness. What a witness it was. Some people might get upset because some people are going to get upset, but he did it in a very kind and honorable way, not dishonoring anyone else around him, but just saying, this is who I am. This is what I believe. This is what we're doing right now. I think one of the reasons so many non-Christians may feel so weirded out when God gets brought up in normal conversations is because Christians have surrendered using normal casual conversation to talk about God. And here's the great thing. We can take that ground back by just simply talking about the Lord. Not in a rude way, not beating people over the head, not being brash, but boldly, kindly, straightforwardly talking about the Lord and his role in our lives and theirs. And we may, at times, have to do what Joseph does and warn people. There's a famine coming. There's a judgment coming. But even when we do that, we're doing it in love and for their good. We warn people about the eternal coming famine, and we point people to the Lord Jesus Christ, the divine deliverer, that God sovereignly raised up to provide bread from heaven to save us from the judgment to come.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have sought abundance. We have sought to feast on the bread of this world. And we repent of that and we turn from that now. And we pray, Lord, help us to feast on your bread. Feed us today, we pray, by your spirit and power. We pray that you would cause those who are listening to turn from the judgment to come and to find in you their soul's rest and satisfaction, to find in you ultimate and true abundance by turning from sin and trusting in you for salvation. And we pray this in your mighty and matchless name. Amen.